Chapters 17, 18, and 19 of Over the Top. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and has been recorded by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Over the Top by Arthur Empey. Chapter 17 Out in Front. After tea, Lieutenant Stores of our section came into the dugout and informed me that I was for a reconnoitering patrol and would carry six Mills bombs. At 11.30 that night, twelve men, our lieutenant and myself, went out in front on a patrol in no man's land. We cruised around in the dark for about two hours, just knocking about looking for trouble, on the lookout for Bosch working parties to see what they were doing. About two in the morning we were all carefully picking our way, about thirty yards in front of the German barbed wire, when we walked into a Bosch covering party nearly thirty strong. Then the music started, the fiddler rendered his bill, and we paid. Fighting in the dark with a bayonet is not very pleasant. The Germans took it on the run, but our officer was no novice at the game, and didn't follow them. He gave the order, Down on the ground, hug it close! Just in time, too because a volley skimmed over our heads. Then in low tones we were told to separate and crawl back to our trenches, each man on his own. We could see the flashes of their rifles in the darkness, but the bullets were going over our heads. We lost three men killed and one wounded in the arm. If it hadn't been for our officers' quick thinking, the whole patrol would have probably been wiped out. After about twenty minutes' wait, we went out again and discovered that the Germans had a wiring party working on their barbed wire. We returned to our trenches unobserved with the information, and our machine guns immediately got busy. The next night four men were sent out to go over and examine the German barbed wire and see if they had cut lanes through it. If so, this presaged an early morning attack on our trenches. Of course, I had to be one of the four selected for the job. It was just like sending a fellow to the undertaker's to order his own coffin. At ten o'clock we started out, armed with three bombs, a bayonet, and revolver. After getting into no man's land, we separated, crawling four or five feet at a time, ducking star shells, with strays cracking overhead. I reached their wire. I scouted along this, inch by inch, scarcely breathing. I could hear them talking in their trench. My heart was pounding against my ribs. One false move or the least noise from me meant discovery and almost certain death. After covering my sector, I quietly crawled back. I had gotten about halfway when I noticed that my revolver was missing. It was pitch dark. I turned about to see if I could find it. It couldn't be far away, because about three or four minutes previously I had felt the butt in the holster. I crawled around in circles, and at last I found it, then started on my way back to our trenches, as I thought. Pretty soon I reached barbed wire, and was just going to give the password, when something told me not to. I put out my hand and touched one of the barbed wire stakes. It was iron. The British are of wood, while the German are iron. My heart stopped beating. By mistake I had crawled back to the German lines. I turned slowly about, and my tunic caught on the wire and made a loud ripping noise. A sharp challenge rang out. I sprang to my feet, ducking low, and ran madly back toward our lines. The Germans started firing. The bullets were biting all around me when, bang, 
a round smash into our wire, and a sharp challenge, Halt! Who comes there? rang out. I gasped out the password, and groping my way through the lane in the wire, tearing my hands and uniform, I stumbled into our trench and was safe. But I was a nervous wreck for an hour, until a drink of rum brought me round. CHAPTER Eighteen, STAGED UNDER FIRE Three days after the incident just related, our company was relieved from the front line and carried out. We stayed in reserve billets for about two weeks, when we received the welcome news that our division would go back of the line to rest billets. We would remain in these billets for at least two months, this in order to be restored to our full strength by drafts of recruits from Blighty. Everyone was happy and contented at these tidings. All you could hear around the billets was whistling and singing. The day after the receipt of the order, we hiked for five days, making an average of about twelve kilometers per day until we arrived at the small town of... can't say. It took us about three days to get settled, and from then on our cushy time started. We would parade from 8.45 in the morning until 12 noon. Then, except for an occasional billet or brigade guard, we were on our own. For the first four or five afternoons I spent my time in bringing up to date my neglected correspondence. Tommy loves to be amused, and, being a Yank, they turned to me for something new in this line. I taught them how to pitch horseshoes, and this game made a great hit for about ten days. Then Tommy turned to America for a new diversion. I was up in the air, until a happy thought came to me. Why not write a sketch and break Tommy in as an actor? One evening after lights out, when you are not supposed to talk, I imparted my scheme in whispers to the section. They eagerly accepted the idea of forming a stock company, and could hardly wait until the morning for further details. After parade, the next afternoon I was almost mobbed. Everyone in the section wanted a part in the proposed sketch. When I informed them that it would take at least ten days of hard work to write the plot, they were bitterly disappointed. I immediately got busy, made a desk out of biscuit tins in the corner of the billet, and put up a sign, Empey and Wallace Theatrical Company. About twenty of the section, upon reading this sign, immediately applied for the position of office boy. I accepted the twenty applicants, and sent them on scouting parties throughout the deserted French village. These parties were to search all the attics for discarded civilian clothes, and anything that we could use in the props of our proposed company. About five that night they returned, covered with grime and dust, but loaded down with a miscellaneous assortment of everything under the sun. They must have thought that I was going to start a department store, judging from the different things they brought back from their pillage. After eight days' constant writing, I completed a two-act farce comedy which I called The Diamond Palace Saloon. Upon the suggestion of one of the boys in the section, I sent a proof of the program to a printing house in London. Then I assigned the different parts and started rehearsing. David Belasco would have thrown up his hands in despair at the material which I had to use. Just imagine trying to teach a Tommy, with a strong Cockney accent, to impersonate a Bowery Tough or a Southern Negro. Adjacent to our billet was an open field. We got busy at one end of it and constructed a stage. We secured the lumber for the stage by demolishing an old wooden shack in the rear of our billet. The first scene was supposed to represent a street on the Bowery in New York. 
while the scene of the second act was the interior of the Diamond Palace Saloon, also on the Bowery. In the play I took the part of Abe Switch, a farmer, who had come from Pumpkinville Center, Tennessee, to make his first visit to New York. In the first scene, Abe Switch meets the proprietor of the Diamond Palace Saloon, a ramshackle affair which to the owner was a financial loss. The proprietor's name was Tom Twistum, his bartender being named Philem Up. After meeting Abe, Tom and Philem Up persuaded him to buy the place, praising it to the skies and telling wondrous tales of the money taken over the bar. While they were talking, an old Jew named Ike Cohenstein comes along, and Abe engages him for cashier. After engaging Ike, they meet an old southern negro called Sambo, and upon the suggestion of Ike, he is engaged as porter. Then the three of them, arm in arm, leave to take possession of this wonderful palace which Abe had just paid six thousand dollars for. Curtain. In the second act, the curtain rises on the interior of the Diamond Palace Saloon, and the audience gets its first shock. The saloon looks like a pig pen, two tramps lying drunk on the floor, and the bartender with a dirty shirt with his sleeves rolled up, asleep with his head on the bar. Enter Abe, Sambo, and Ike, and the fun commences. One of the characters in the second act was named Broadway Kate, and I had an awful job to break in one of the Tommies to act and talk like a woman. Another character was Alkali Ike, an Arizona cowboy, who just before the close of the play comes into the saloon and wrecks it with his revolver. We had eleven three-hour rehearsals before I thought it advisable to present the sketch to the public. The whole brigade was crazy to witness the first performance. This performance was scheduled for Friday night, and everyone was full of anticipation, when, bang, orders came through that the brigade would move at two that afternoon. Cursing and blinding was the order of things upon the receipt of this order, but we moved. That night we reached the little village of, still can't say, and again went into rest billets. We were to be there two weeks. Our company immediately got busy and scoured the village for a suitable place in which to present our production. Then we received another shock. A rival company was already established in the village. They called themselves the Bow Bells, and put on a sketch entitled, Blighty, What Hopes? They were the divisional concert party. We hoped they all would be soon in Blighty to give us a chance. This company charged an admission of a franc per head, and that night our company went en masse to see their performance. It really was good. I had a sinking sensation when I thought of running my sketch in opposition to it. In one of their scenes they had a soubrette named Flossie. The soldier that took this part was clever and made a fine-appearing and chic girl. We immediately fell in love with her until two days after— while we were on a march, we passed Flossie with her sleeves rolled up and the sweat pouring from her face, unloading shells from a motor lorry. As our section passed her, I yelled out, "'Hello, Flossie! Blighty, what hopes?' Her reply made our love die out instantly. "'Ah, go to hell!' This brought quite a laugh from the marching column directed at me, and I instantly made up my mind that our sketch should immediately run in opposition to Blighty, what hopes?' When we returned to our billet from the march, Curly Wallace, my theatrical partner, 
came running over to me and said he had found a swanky place in which to produce our show. After taking off my equipment, and followed by the rest of the section, I went over to the building he had picked out. It was a monstrous barn, with a platform at one end which would make an ideal stage. The section got right on the job, and before night had that place rigged out in apple-pie order. The next day was Sunday, and after church parade, we put all our time on a dress rehearsal, and it went fine. I made four or five large signs announcing that our company would open up that evening at the King George V Theatre, on the corner of Ammo Street and Sandbag Terrace. General admission was one-half franc. First ten rows in orchestra, one franc, and boxes, two francs. By this time our printed programs had returned from London, and I further announced that on the night of the first performance a program would be given free of charge to men holding tickets costing a franc or over. We had an orchestra of seven men and seven different instruments. This orchestra was excellent while they were not playing. The performance was scheduled to start at 6 p.m. At 5.15 there was a mob in front of our one entrance, and it looked like a big night. We had two boxes each accommodating four people, and those we immediately sold out. Then a brilliant idea came to Ike Cohenstein. Why not use the rafters overhead, call them boxes, and charge two francs for a seat on them? The only difficulty was how were the men to reach those boxes, but to Ike this was a mere detail. He got long ropes and tied one end around each rafter, and then tied a lot of knots in the ropes. These ropes would take the place of stairways. We figured out that the rafters would seat about forty men, and sold that number of tickets accordingly. When the ticket holders for the boxes got a glimpse of the rafters, and were informed that they had to use the rope stairway, there was a howl of indignation. But we had their money, and told them that if they did not like it, they could write to the management later and their money would be refunded, but under these conditions they would not be allowed to witness the performance that night. After a little grousing they accepted the situation with the promise that if the show was rotten they certainly would let us know about it during the performance. Everything went lovely and it was a howling success, until Alkali Ike appeared on the scene with his revolver loaded with blank cartridges. Behind the bar on a shelf was a long line of bottles. Alkali Ike was supposed to start on the left of this line and break six of the bottles by firing at them with his revolver. Behind these bottles, a piece of painted canvas was supposed to represent the back of the bar. At each shot from Alkali's pistol, a man behind the scenes would hit one of the bottles with his entrenching tool handle and smash it to give the impression that Alkali was a good shot. Alkali Ike started in and aimed at the right of the line of bottles, instead of the left, and the poor boob behind the scenes started breaking the bottles on the left, and then the box-holders turned loose. But outside of this little fiasco, the performance was a huge success, and we decided to run it for a week. New troops were constantly coming through, and for six performances we had the SRO sign suspended outside. Chapter 19 on his own. Of course Tommy cannot always be producing plays under fire, but while in rest billets he has numerous other ways of amusing himself. He is a great gambler, but never plays for large stakes. Generally, in each company, you will find a regular Canfield. This man banks nearly all the games of chance, 
and is an undisputed authority on the rules of gambling. Whenever there is argument among the Tommies about some uncertain point as to whether Houghton is entitled to Watkins' sixpence, the matter is taken to the recognized authority and his decision is final. The two most popular games are Crown and Anchor and House. The paraphernalia used in Crown and Anchor consists of a piece of canvas two feet by three feet. This is divided into six equal squares. In these squares are painted a club, diamond, heart, spade, crown, and an anchor, one device to a square. There are three dice used, each dice marked the same as the canvas. The banker sets up his gambling outfit in the corner of a billet and starts ballyhooing until a crowd of Tommies gather round, then the game starts. The Tommies place bets on the squares, the crown or anchor being played the most. The banker then rolls his three dice and collects or pays out, as the case may be. If you play the crown, and one shows up on the dice, you get even money. If two show up, you receive two to one, and if three, three to one. If the crown does not appear and you have bet on it, you lose, and so on. The percentage for the banker is large if every square is played, but if the crowd is partial to, say, two squares, he has to trust to luck. The banker generally wins. The game of house is very popular also. It takes two men to run it. This game consists of numerous squares of cardboard containing three rows of numbers, five numbers to a row. The numbers run from one to ninety. Each card has a different combination. The French estaminets in the villages are open from eleven in the morning until one in the afternoon in accordance with army orders. After dinner, the Tommies congregate at these places to drink French beer at a penny a glass and play house. As soon as the estaminet is sufficiently crowded, the proprietors of the house game get busy and, as they term it, form a school. This consists of going around and selling cards at a franc each. If they have ten in the school, the backers of the game deduct two francs for their trouble, and the winner gets eight francs. Then the game starts. Each buyer places his card before him on the table, first breaking up matches into fifteen pieces. One of the backers of the game has a small cloth bag in which are ninety cardboard squares, each with a number printed thereon, from one to ninety. He raps on the table and cries out, "'Eyes down, my lucky lads!' All noise ceases, and every one is attention. The croupier places his hand in the bag and draws forth a numbered square, and immediately calls out the number. The man who owns the card with that particular number on it covers the square with a match. The one who covers the fifteen numbers on his card first shouts, House! The other backer immediately comes over to him and verifies the card by calling out the numbers thereon to the man with the bag. As each number is called, he picks it out of the ones picked from the bag, and says, Right. If the count is right, he shouts, House correct, pay the lucky gentleman, and send him a card for the next school. The lucky gentleman generally buys one, unless he has a Semitic trace in his veins. Then another collection is made, a school formed, and they carry on with the game. The caller-out has many nicknames for the numbers, such as Kelly's Eye, for one, Legs eleven for eleven, clickety click for sixty six, 
or top of the house, meaning ninety. The game is honest and quite enjoyable. Sometimes you have fourteen numbers on your card covered, and you are waiting for the fifteenth to be called. In an imploring voice you call out, Come on, Watkins, chum, I'm sweating on Kelly's eye. Watkins generally replies, Well, keep it out of a draft, you'll catch cold. Another game is pontoon, played with cards. It is the same as our blackjack or twenty-one. A card game called brag is also popular. Using a casino deck, the dealer deals each player three cards. It is similar to our poker, except for the fact that you only use three cards and cannot draw. The deck is never shuffled until a man shows three of a kind, or a prile, as it is called. The value of the hands are high card, a pair, a run, a flush or three of a kind, or prile. The limit is generally a penny, and so it is hard to win a fortune. The next in popularity is a card game called Nap. It is well named. Every time I played it, I went to sleep. Whist and solo whist are played by the highbrows of the company. When the gamblers tire of all other games, they try banker and broker. I spent a week trying to teach some of the Tommies how to play poker, but because I won thirty-five francs, they declared that they didn't fancy the game. Tommy plays few card games. The general run never heard of poker, euchre, seven-up, or pinochle. They have a game similar to pinochle called Royal Bezique, but few know how to play it. Generally there are two decks of cards in a section, and in a short time they are so dog-eared and greasy, you can hardly tell the ace of spades from the ace of hearts. The owners of these decks sometimes condescend to lend them after much coaxing. So you see, Mr. Atkins has his fun mixed in with his hardships, and contrary to popular belief, the rank and file of the British Army in the trenches is one big happy family. Now in Virginia, at school, I was fed on old McGuffey's primary reader, which gave me an opinion of an Englishman about equal to a 1776 Minute Man's, backed up by a Sinn Feiner's. But I found Tommy to be the best of mates, and a gentleman through and through. He never thinks of knocking his officers. If one makes a costly mistake, and Tommy pays with his blood, there is no general condemnation of the officer. He is just pitied. It is exactly the same as it was with the light brigade at Balaclava, to say nothing of Gallipoli, Neuve-Chapelle, and Luz. Personally, I remember a little incident where twenty of us were sent on a trench raid, only two of us returning, but I will tell this story later on. I said it was a big happy family, and so it is but as in all happy families there are servants, so in the British Army there are also servants, officer servants, or O.S. as they are termed. In the American Army the common name for them is dog robbers. From a controversy in the English papers, Winston Churchill made the statement, as far as I can remember, that the officers' servants in the British forces totaled nearly two hundred thousand. He claimed that this removed 200,000 exceptionally good and well-trained fighters from the actual firing line, claiming that the officers, when selecting a man for servant's duty, generally picked the man who had been out the longest and knew the ropes. But from my observation, I find that a large percentage of the servants do go over the top, but behind the lines they very seldom engage in digging parties, fatigues, parades, or drills. 
This work is as necessary as actually engaging in an attack, therefore I think that it would be safe to say that the all-round work of the 200,000 is about equal to 50,000 men who are on straight military duties. In numerous instances, officers' servants hold the rank of lance corporals, and they assume the same duties and authority of a butler, the one stripe giving him precedence over the other servants. There are lots of amusing stories told of O.S. One day one of our majors went into the servant's billet and commenced blinding at them, saying that his horse had no straw, and that he personally knew that straw had been issued for this purpose. He called the lance corporal to account. The corporal answered, "'Blind me, sir, the straw was issued, but there wasn't enough left over from the servants' beds. In fact, they had to use some of the hay to help out, sir.' It is needless to say that the servants dispensed with their soft beds that particular night. Nevertheless, it is not the fault of the individual officer. It is just the survival of a quaint old English custom. You know an Englishman cannot be changed in a day. But the average English officer is a good sport. He will sit on a fire-step and listen respectfully to Private Jones's theory of the way the war should be conducted. This war is gradually crumbling the once unsurmountable wall of caste. You would be convinced of this if you could see King George go among his men on an inspecting tour under fire, or pause before a little wooden cross in some shell-tossed field, with tears in his eyes as he reads the inscription, and a little later perhaps bend over a wounded man on a stretcher, patting him on the head. More than once in a hospital I have seen a titled Red Cross nurse fetching and carrying for a wounded soldier, perhaps the one who in civil life delivered the coal at her back door. Today she does not shrink from lighting his fag or even washing his grimy body. Tommy admires Albert of Belgium because he is not a pusher of men, he leads them. With him it's not a case of take that trench, it is come on and we will take it. It is amusing to notice the different characteristics of the Irish, Scotch, and English soldiers. The Irish and Scotch are very impetuous, especially when it comes to bayonet fighting, while the Englishman, though a trifle slower, thoroughly does his bit. He is more methodical, and has the grip of a bulldog on a captured position. He is slower to think. That is the reason why he never knows when he is licked. Twenty minutes before going over the top, the English Tommy will sit on the fire-step and thoroughly examine the mechanism of his rifle to see that it is in working order and will fire properly. After this examination he is satisfied and ready to meet the Boche. But the Irishman or Scotchman sits on the fire-step, his rifle with bayonet fixed between his knees, the butt of which perhaps is sinking into the mud. The bolt couldn't be opened with a team of horses, it is so rusty but he spits on his sleeve and slowly polishes his bayonet. When this is done, he also is ready to argue with Fritz. It is not necessary to mention the Colonials, the Canadians, Australians, and New Zealanders. The whole world knows what they have done for England. The Australian and New Zealander is termed the Anzac, taking the name from the first letters of their official designation, Australian and New Zealand Army Corps. Tommy divides the German army into three classes according to their fighting abilities. They rank as follows, Prussians, Bavarians, and Saxons. 
when up against a Prussian regiment, it is a case of keep your napper below the parapet and duck. A bang-bang all the time, and a war is on. The Bavarians are little better, but the Saxons are fairly good sports, and are willing occasionally to behave as gentlemen and take it easy, but you cannot trust any of them over long. At one point of the line the trenches were about thirty-two yards apart. This sounds horrible, but in fact it was easy, because neither side could shell the enemy's front-line trench for fear shells would drop into their own. This eliminated artillery fire. In these trenches when up against the Prussians and Bavarians, Tommy had a hot time of it, but when the Saxons took over, it was a picnic. They would yell across that they were Saxons and would not fire. Both sides would sit on the parapet and carry on a conversation. This generally consisted of Tommy telling them how much he loved the Kaiser, while the Saxons informed Tommy that King George was a particular friend of theirs, and hoped that he was doing nicely. When the Saxons were to be relieved by Prussians or Bavarians, they would yell this information across no man's land, and Tommy would immediately tumble into his trench and keep his head down. If an English regiment was to be relieved by the wild Irish, Tommy would tell the Saxons, and immediately a volley of Donner und Blitzens could be heard, and it was Fritz's turn to get a crick in his back from stooping, and the people in Berlin would close their windows. Usually when an Irishman takes over a trench, just before stand-down in the morning, he sticks his rifle over the top, aimed in the direction of Berlin, and engages in what is known as the Mad Minute. This consists of firing fifteen shots in a minute. He is not aiming at anything in particular, just sends over each shot with a prayer, hoping that one of his strays will get some poor unsuspecting Fritz in the napper, hundreds of yards behind the lines. It generally does. That's the reason the Boches hate the man from Aaron's Isle. The Saxons, though better than the Prussians and Bavarians, have a nasty trait of treachery in their make-up. At one point of the line where the trenches were very close, a stake was driven into the ground midway between the hostile lines. At night, when it was his turn, Tommy would crawl to this stake and attach some London papers to it, while at the foot he would place tins of bully beef, fags, sweets, and other delicacies that he had received from Blighty in the ever-looked-for parcel. Later on, Fritz would come out and get these luxuries. The next night Tommy would go out to see what Fritz had put into his stocking. The donation generally consisted of a paper from Berlin, telling who was winning the war, some tinned sausages, cigars, and occasionally a little beer. But a funny thing, Tommy never returned with the beer unless it was inside of him. His platoon got a whiff of his breath one night, and the offending Tommy lost his job. One night a young English sergeant crawled to the stake, and as he tried to detach the German paper, a bomb exploded and mangled him horribly. Fritz had set his trap, and gained another victim which was only one more black mark against him in the book of this war. From that time on, diplomatic relations were severed. Returning to Tommy, I think his spirit is best shown in the questions he asks. It is never, who is going to win, but always, how long will it take? End of chapter.